Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. This is a painting called My Sister the Charcoal Burner. I do have a sister who was once upon a time made charcoal. I mean, a lot is made of the colour that I use. I don't work to a colour theory, but I am aware that colour does a huge amount of work. It is the, it's the spice and the, um, the flavour of the paintings. It's, um, it's reactive. I, um, I'm working off a, a, a warm coloured ground, which you can see here in, in the furniture, in that, in that ochreish golden brown. The, the painting would have been that colour all over initially. When I'm choosing colours, I, I am, for many years I worked in a very dark studio and I was using bright colours, I think, almost to be able to see what I was doing. I think if I'm going to be making narrative paintings and there is a, there is a large degree of narrative in the work I make, I'm not just interested in the storytelling, I'm interested in the sensation of encounter. And I think that colour does that. I mean, I was through art school, I painted big abstract paintings and I could argue a case for me being an abstract painter now. This is quite a recent painting. I mean, they're all, these are all big, two or three metre paintings. Um, and this, 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 is, this is very recent, which is probably why I put it in. I mean, colours, I, 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 I know that I steal them, I see them and I register them. And colours individually, I think, really don't mean a lot. They, they begin to work when you have more than one together. That's, that sort of tuning. I mean, a lot of the process of making paintings like these is leaving them and having conversations with them out of the corner of my eye whilst I make the decision as to what the colour will be because once the colour goes in, it's um, the, co the background I'm referring to in particular is the last thing that happens in the paintings and that's going to control and alter everything. I think there is a difference, I think the difference between colours and tones and um, they certainly colours change very dramatically um, just by minute shifts in, in hue. But um, I'm sure a lot of this will be discussed as we go through our conversation. So I, shall, that, I think that's me done. Thanks very much, Stephen. It's now Tom Stewart-Smith's turn. In a rather sort of humdrum way, I've actually written something. So I, I may deviate from it at a time, but um, I don't actually think about colour a, a tremendous amount of my work. It's not, it's not forefront. So I felt I had to put something down in writing to try and sort of congeal what I actually did think about colour. For most of my life as a designer, I've thought about gardens primarily in terms of space and atmosphere. And my mind's eye is largely painted in black and white. Almost all the drawings I make for gardens are in pencil. Colour seems a distraction to the task of working out how a place knits together. Sometimes in the past, this approach has backfired. And in 2002, as Tim said earlier, I made drawings for the Queen's Jubilee Garden at Windsor Castle. And they were sent off to the palace for royal approval. They were returned with prominent notes underlined in red pen. You know those little green red pencils that, um, well, the Queen used to use them. And scrawled under, <laughs> scrawled, sorry, with a double underlining with the, with the words, we want colour. Anyway, Her Majesty Julie got colour. It's not all, it's not that I really dislike the stuff, but I use it to accentuate atmosphere, to emphasise connections and, or separations from context. But sometimes, of course, I can't resist simply being saturated in the intensity of it. The deep velvet red of Rose Charles de Mills, or the breathtaking blue of Delphinium Lord Butler, very difficult to associate with anything else except for another blue Delphinium, but astonishing in its own right. I think it's only really with my own garden that I started wallowing more deeply in the luxuries of colour living with opulence of peonies, salvias of papal purple and iridescent nifofias made me want to use them in ways that seemed to work in the setting of a garden and a landscape. At home, we have a small courtyard surrounded by black barns, tiled roofs and brick walls. So we might have a picture. This is our courtyard garden that we look out to from our kitchen. And um, we added these the uh, walls and tanks made out of Corten steel, and these heightened the orange, brown, rust black look of the place. Most of the plants are in strong contrast, acid greens in spring, and deep red and purple tulips. More purples, deep reds, and yellows in summer. Along one side of this garden, the side from which this, this photograph is taken, is a long glazed corridor which runs along the front of our house. It was the old corridor that ran along the front of the 
pigsties when it was a, when it was a farm. And um, in that corridor, we have a, a big painting. In fact, there are four paintings by my daughter, Rose, who's a painter. And, um, but what's unusual about them is that we change them with the seasons. And the, the, the idea of the commission was that, that um, with each moment of the equinox, we're not very thorough about that. It rather depends more on the weather. That we, we put up a different painting. And they're big, they're big canvases, about eight, by, eight foot by five foot which relate to what's going on in the garden. And I'm, I'm very embarrassed that this photograph is actually taken with my iPhone a week ago in rather poor light. The, the, the greens in this are actually rather iridescent and wonderful, um, not, not quite so sultry as they are in that. But that is the, that is the painting that we're about to put up that, um, that relates to the, 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 the euphorbias and the bright greens and so on in the garden. So there is a kind of connection between what happens inside the house and, and outside. I think very colourful gardening normally works more effectively in closed spaces. I don't necessarily mean small spaces. In closed spaces, heighten the sense of warmth and intensity. By contrast, bright colour in spaces more open to the landscape can often profoundly disrupt the perception of a place and the sense of continuity with that landscape. I remember once, about 30 years ago probably, going to Stour Head at this time of year. The garden was green and brown and very beautiful. But on the far side of the lake from where you come in, Dominating the view for acres around was a little clump of a bright pink rhododendron called rhododendron precox. I could have strangled the bloody thing. <laughs> Returning home, I started to think how the garden could have, had a, could have a gradient of naturalness. I used the more exotic plants with less natural or indigenous colouring closer to the house in the more enclosed and domestic spaces. And as you approach the more open edges of the garden, the planting becomes more natural and the colouring softer almost a kind of aerial perspective where everything on the horizon tends towards a blue-gray. Here is a picture of the garden at the back in May when everything is white and yellow and soft blues and so on. Later on, this part of the garden takes on the yellows and purples and blues of the surrounding meadow with its trefoils, knapweeds and scabious. But bright colors don't, however, need to be confined to small spaces. It's just that if unleashed into a larger area, you need to do it with conviction, not with half a dozen little plants of rhododendron precox. Six years ago, we sowed an acre of exotic perennials, flowers. And the sensation of being in this place during late summer is quite overpowering. And much of this is because of the most outrageous amount of colour all around you. Nevertheless, it's contained by hedges, and so it never spills out and pollutes the wide open landscape. It is a cacophony, but most of this time, it's a very beautiful cacophony. In my mind, there's only one really small aberration, which is when there's a fleshy pink thing called a Scheiser stylus, which has now rather irritatingly changed its name to Hesperanthera, and it cozies up to a mass of yellow rebecchias and coreopsis with excruciating results. In another place, I've, added, I've allied color, space, and materials in a slightly different way. In this garden in Norfolk, there's a progression of space, of, there's a progression of spaces from a calm, entirely enclosed interior garden around a pool and a hammam, through a more domestic, partly enclosed space, to a wider area which is continuous with the landscape. The interior space here is almost entirely green, quiet and contemplative, but uses, as with my own courtyard, Corten, to accentuate the richly coloured materials of North Norfolk, car stone, Hunstanton stone, brick, tile, flint, chalk. The intermediate space is very colourful, with russets, rich reds, acid greens, and then the wider space beyond this is quieter again. So the journey from the inner protected heart of the garden to the wilder fringes is accompanied by a parallel fluctuation in mood and colour. My last slide shows a garden in chalk country, not far from Stonehenge. The walls here are made of cob and thatch, the houses of brick, flint, and chalk. The new low walls in the garden are made of light grey zinc, and the inside of the swimming pool, which is in the middle of this garden, is made of grey polished concrete. The colour of the planting again accentuates this cool mood, so we're swimming through a very cool ethereal meadow of violet, lilac, cream, and blue, swimming out into a landscape of pale light. Um, as a last word, I can't resist saying something about how in one specific way, 
this wonderful exhibition at the RA strikes me. I can't help asking why the garden, by and large, ceases to be a fitting object for artists. I know there are many um, notable exceptions. Charlotte Verity is standing in the, sitting in the front row is one of them. Um, but where are the Monets and the Voyards of today? Now the garden is deemed too mainstream and compromised by layers of bourgeois thoughtless pastry making to be a subject for intelligent discourse. And yet our gardens are for many of us one of the most creative arenas of our lives, a crucible of dreams, and perhaps the primary means whereby many of us articulate our relationship with nature. But we quietly denigrate them as something beneath intellectual consideration, when of course, as social and cultural documents, they're profoundly interesting and revealing about who we are and how we relate to our world. As Renoir said, give me an apple tree in a suburban garden. I haven't the slightest need of Niagara Falls. Sometimes I think we've become so blinded by the increasingly unattainable sublime in nature that we can't see the beauty of what's on the doorstep or can't be bothered to interrogate the psychological mysteries of the herbaceous border. Thanks. Thank you, Tom. A rabble-rousing speech. Now we turn to Sarah Price. Every colour shifts um, depending on the light in which it's seen. And this photo is of the lane just above where I live in South Wales. You can see it's ancient. The banks reach about five or six metres upwards. And um, because of the darkness, the light that filters through the trees really um, accentuates the, the leaves, the twigs, the foliage. In this darkness, moss appears golden. Um, to me, it's really hard to capture colour, and it's, it's easier, really, to work in black and white sometimes and let our imagination fill in the blanks. So this is an image of my 2012 Chelsea garden for the Daily Telegraph. And again, I was thinking about the lanes around where I live in Wales and how the light penetrates through the layers of planting in such a special way. You can see I've got a, mainly a tapestry of green, but very, very modest plants like um, Herb Robert, you can just about see under that birch tree there, they really, really glimmered in, in the light. So the light filters through the trees, down, down, into this kind of tapestry of green and picks out the smallest viola, the smallest magenta sparkle of, of, of red campion. And I suppose I'm really interested in exaggerating these layers that you see in nature so that they can capture light and really, really amplify colour. So we can take inspiration from nature as well in the, the way that it arranges colour, in the patterns, and we can exaggerate it. And here's another view of the garden, and you've got the tall, tall Valeriano officinalis hovering above the meadow. It's stylized. It's made legible so it doesn't look too wild so that we can read and understand it. I love this image, um, partly because of the, the day-glow colors really um, emphasize the construction workers' outfits. And um, it's, again, taking inspiration from nature, but this time it's from... South Africa, and it's from um, moist montane grasslands there. And this is a, a photo of um, Olympic planting, plantings taken during their construction, as you can see, um, which I co-designed with James Hitchmo. He's a South African specialist. But I had fun playing with um, the planting palette. I mean, I love the way in which the pale lilacs of the Tobalgia, this... Um, bangle of plants down here and the Bokea purpurea really sort of almost almost jar with the nephophia which have become so unfashionable and how um, there's a backdrop of dark green up there which is an area of restios South African reeds which really let these bejeweled colours glow to me there's a kind of correlation with maybe the strange hybrid colours that some of the um, like Monet and post-impressionists became obsessed with, the chrysanthemums and dahlias. And um, I, think, I think I've got a strange fascination with the strange off-pinks and peaches, which are almost kind of untasteful, but can be so delicious. And here's another view of the, of the plantings. Um, so what's 
fantastic about working in this way. It's like, as you would see in the wild, in a meadow, when one species flowers, like, say, an orange nephophia, then the whole garden will turn orange. And likewise, when a yellow flower, like um, this more Haflocarpus scabiosa down here, you'll get a wave of yellow. And um, that way of working is really, really exciting. It also means you can just put colours into the mix. And if they don't work, I don't know, there's so many colours, they're held together with the matrix of grasses. So you can, um, it can work. And this again is, um, is, well, I wish I could say I did this planting, but I didn't. It's, it's by James Hitchmo and Nigel Dunnett, again in the Olympic Park. But I wanted to talk about colour in an urban environment. In the city, we experience colours quite differently. They're, um, they're often LCD screens or advertising lit up, or think of all the colours of plastic or industrial paints. And to me, this, is, um, this planting is kind of the closest I've seen to kind of having this electricity about it. And um, I think it, it works really well, juxtapositions against these, um, these posters. And um, it's really using annuals, hot, warm colours, and cool colours of the annuals, and then just letting these fireworks of nephophias and this very commonly used verbena bonariensis coming up through them, but it's electrifying. And here's another view um, of their work. And doesn't it strike you? It's just like the pointillists, the way that they've, they've, they've literally almost squeezed paint out of, directly out of the, out of, um, the tube and, and applied it en masse. And it works because it is en masse. Um, it's rather like it's got some of the energy of that Kadinsky in the exhibition, just, just full of colour and, and life. And this is, um, in contrast, my final image, which I've had on my studio wall for many years. It's of um, Victor Passmore, and I thought I'd throw in a British artist. And it's um, the Hanging Gardens of Hammersmith, created <laughs> around 1945. And um, I often think colour in the garden is most successful when there's almost a a mask over the garden like there's a almost when you go to a site you have to sort of assess if there's a color color mask like say there is on a shingle beach where the shingle is the dominant color um and here it's the mist mist over the river and he's painted it almost as if it's um it's a kind of pure color backdrop and which highlights these wonderful curved forms of the black trees and branches and what's so wonderful is that he's used tiny pointillist pinpricks of pale lime green and dark dark maroon to make up this this flowering scene of leaves and I suppose that's a really effective way of, of using colour in the garden building it up in lots of tiny pointillist layers like the last three images we've seen, and rather like the dappled light coming through those trees on the first slide. Thank you very much, Sarah. And finally, um, <laughs> uh, and finally, um, we'll move on to Dan Pearson. I just wanted to start with this image of uh, a Terrell light installation, which I first saw at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park. And I didn't understand before I went into the room where this installation was, quite what I was expecting, but the guard who led us in said, um, please feel free when you get in there um, to reach out and touch the light. I didn't know what he meant. Um, we went into a room, um, seven or eight complete strangers, and we each found our own space in this dark room. And um, it was slightly threatening because we didn't know what to expect. Uh, you were deprived of um, anything visual to start with, and slowly out of the gloom, um, this extraordinary rectangle of light appeared um, out of nowhere as your eyes adjusted to it. And with that, um, the colour in that light. Um, and you did, the sensation you had was to want to try and touch it. Um, and I found that a very moving experience because it was about, um, it was a condition that happened and when you allowed yourself to adjust to the situation. 
Um, and it reminded me very much of being uh, in a bluebell wood, um, where if you go in when there is a certain light level, say at the gloaming hour or just before the gloaming hour, um, the blues will be uh, transitioned from one thing uh, to another as the light levels change. And the blue will rise in its intensity and hover um, as the light diminishes. Um, and it's an extraordinary thing to be part of um, and to witness. Um, and I think these are uh, the raw materials that we have um, as garden makers uh, to play with because uh, light has ultimately um, the last say on whatever colour you use. And the colours are something which are transformative and changeable and, um, and fugitive as well. So what I love about this environment of the Blue Bowl Wood, for instance, is that in um, six weeks' time, um, the currently almost monochromatic environment that we see if we walk into a, a woodland that has, had, that has a carpet of bluebells is transformed over a matter of weeks and then is diminished over a matter of days back to nothing. Um, and it's an extraordinary thing to be part of, and I think that's something we can draw great, great inspiration from for um, creating gardens. Um, because I am surrounded so much by uh, vegetation in my world of garden making, I'm often drawn to desert or desertified landscapes as inspiration. Um, and this is a, a landscape I go back to again and again in Andalusia called uh, the Cabo de Gato, which is a wonderful reserve. Um, and on the first uh, two days that I'm there, um, I'm aware of how uh, ravaged the landscape is, how, um, um, how lacking in apparent colour it actually is. And then when you spend time and your eye calibrates to the difference and the lack of greenery which um, exists there because the climate is so different, you start to see all these extraordinary patches and pinpricks and saturations of colour that are found within that overall um, cast that's created by those brown grasses which cover the hills. Um, as your eye focuses, you see that the, um, the anthers which are hanging off the grasses are in fact an amazing saffron orange. Um, you see that the browns um, are not brown at all, but rust uh, red, rust red in there. And after it rains, the whole environment changes dramatically. The lime greens, acid colours of the lichens on the rocks jump out of that environment because they are hidden within uh, this cast of neutral tones. So I find looking at nature uh, an enormous inspiration for my work and I've been very lucky to be able to be part of a 20-acre landscape in Somerset where I, I live. Um, and I've been uh, over-sowing and manipulating uh, the meadows there very gently to um, try and understand what's going in there and to try and heighten their intensity. And one of the things that I think the meadows offer me is what... Sarah's pointed to is this um, concept of uh, the pointillist colour um, because the colour will come in waves over the weeks that the meadows are in uh, flux. Um, first of all you'll get the bright yellow dandelions and the celandines and then you'll get uh, the grasses coming through and the whole thing will apparently be lacking in colour while uh, things start to go to seed like the dandelions which then become silver um, and then you get these marsh thistles rising, rising up with these quite dark, wonderful flecks of dark purple. Um, and it's all throughout this cast of ever-changing grasses, which is first bright green as a backdrop and then turns to a thunderous, wonderful, smoky brown purple. And then, of course, as the meadow changes, it is uh, buttered and then becomes parchment. So over the course of the season, you're able to look into this environment and draw huge amounts of inspiration from it for the garden. Um, and I use colour in my plantings um, in an ephemeral way, and I'll use it as it appears in a meadow, often repeated again and again. And both Tom and Sarah have pointed to this in their work, and it's a wonderful thing that we can play with, because you can play with it over 
um, large expanses and use it to draw the eye over sometimes quite some distance. And it works in very different ways as well because um, you can go from one colour to the next and something like this um, I still be here which is currently purple will turn a cinnamon brown as the season goes on. So the same thing can become something completely different and then reappear with something completely different uh, uh, at another time of year. Um, this is the same planting and I'm using these big drifts of grasses to separate colour fields and the field of colour you see in the foreground here is reds, it's persicarias with flecks of uh, thalictrum coming through. Um, I'm then playing with eryngiums which will brown after they go green. And then on the other side of the grasses, um, I've got another colour field altogether which is yellows um, with rudbeckias and, um, and uh, miscanthus with bright acid green flecks in them um, and a completely different colourway which is separated by the neutrality of these grasses. Um, and then this last slide just shows you uh, the same planting at two very different seasons. Another colour field within this same planting in uh, the forest in this uh, Hokkaido project. Um, first, uh, early in the season uh, with Euphorbia fire glow, um, which erupts uh, and literally smoulders. Um, and you can see uh, I'm using uh, the grasses here as a separation again, which are those thunderous colours on the right. Um, and as they change throughout the year, the grasses become buttered um, and the colour goes out of the euphorbia. And then what you get coming through after the euphorbia becomes neutral and green is a layer of sanguisorbas, which have these um, pinpricks of dark red, which I then con contrast with pinpricks of white, so you get this very dark and this very light thing happening as the light levels change and you go into autumn and uh, you get the darkness which is the moodiness in the planting and then the lightness which you need um, as contrast to the, the light levels uh, shifting and changing throughout the year. Um, it's an extraordinary subject uh, to be able to play with um, and I think one of the things that we're incredibly lucky with is where colour can get frozen, I'm sure you'll disagree with this, on a canvas. Um, it's constantly changing and constantly shifting if you put it into an outside environment. Thank you, Dan. Uh, so, well, Stephen, you are a little bit outnumbered on the panel here as the only um, painter, but I wondered if you might like to um, perhaps pick up on or reflect on a few things that these um, landscape designers have said. Of course, that I mean, it's sometimes sort of rather, I now realise, lazily used this term, the, the palette of the garden designer, as if it's got much in common with the palette if you're using oil paintings. I mean, is there anything? There are plenty of similarities. I mean, we're all choreographing space. Taking the, the experience of seeing these things is... is um, you, you're, you're, you're controlling the way people see. And... That's, um, I mean, I think that's, I mean, I, I'm interested in the pointless reference and I might take issue because I think um, there you're dealing with a flat space and you're using a pointless to describe things. I mean, the, the, um, I, I understand where it comes from, um, but I think there's, but I think there's sort of speckled experience to describe. Um, but I think that, you know, I think we're, we're, we're orchestrating an experience, we're orchestrating space. Um, with colour and the, um, I think that in all the gardens that we've seen here, these kind of just terrific gardens, we're almost, I think, all of, the, the, all four of us are, are trying to do as little as we can um, and, and ra rather than knock everything out. One of the difficult things, I think, with this, the show, which is, uh, you know, Anne Dumas, who, curated the exhibition, who is one of the great curators of our time. But it's a hard thing to put so many vibrant paintings together um, without them running into one another. Um, in a way, the ideal situation would be to see one at a time, or one on each wall. Um, um, and I think with... I mean, I, th I do... Uh, so I think that's... Um, 
that, that's, that's something that's been wrestled with. I, I imagine as, a, as people that are constructing gardens where you're, um, you're very aware of how quickly things are changing. I mean, things, pa paintings, which of course are the same thing wherever you take it, and it's going to be the same painting today as it is tomorrow or in six months, but they do change a lot where they're shown, they change a lot, I think, with the, the colour of the walls they're showing on, let alone what they're showing beside. Um, I mean, decisions that I make with colour, one of them, it's not a very big one, but it is one that I do consider, is um, how the colour that I'm choosing to put into the background, which are a big moment of these paintings, how they're going to reproduce. Um, and there is certainly, I'm certainly aware of the lithographer's colour wheel and the, one of the reasons I showed the middle painting which is the big, very big, deep burgundy colour painting is that that colour is the hardest to reproduce uh, um, of all uh, and it becomes a different painting where it's been reproduced a lot um, it's been on covers of catalogues at the Royal Academy um, and Are, are some colours harder to sell? Um, some some colours are, are harder to sell. I mean, it's certainly harder to sell a black and white print than it is a coloured print. If you, the warm prints, warm paintings, grab attention, and um, I am aware. I, I mean, I'm aware of it. It's, those those aren't incidentally decisions that I make, and I'm not. I don't make those decisions because of that. But I, I'm much more interested in you know, the preservation of the experience of seeing them. Yes, it, it wasn't really my joke, it was Stephen's joke. It's something you told me beforehand. Try not to I know, be too I, I know that I, I, I'm, I mean, I, I think, think of myself as a painter that makes prints, and um, I think of myself as a printing imposter, but I, I am aware that if I make a, bur a burnt orange print, they just, they just go. <laughs> well, we are a bit saddled in, in gardens, actually, with this um, art terminology which we turn to very easily. I mean, the very word landscape or la landscape was originally landscape, and it actually referred to a painting, a painting style. And then Horace Walpole famously said that um, a landscape painting is just like a garden hung up. And then we've used the term tapestry this evening, making reference to things like the unicorn tapestries in the Clooney Museum and the cloisters in New York, you know, these places where you see these t uh, embroidery. It's constantly, we're, we're always using metaphors drawn uh, from the art world. But, Tom, if I can turn to you, I mean, uh, there seems to me to have been a change in garden style in around the mid-90s, with specific regard to colour. Um, in the mid-90s, we had wonderful books by the likes of um, Andrew Lawson and Norrie and Sandra Pope on colour, on colour theory. And there was an awful lot of um, talk and discussion about colour-theming gardens with the herbaceous border as the high point of the gardener's art. All of this, of course, descended from Gertrude Jekyll, who was absolutely technocratic about colour, um, drew, her, drew her ideas from Chevroy and the colour wheel of primary and complementary colours, and this idea that certain colours and combinations of them have very specific emotional effects on the viewer. And then around the mid-90s, this was suddenly sort of jettisoned by almost the entirety of the garden uh, profession, Partly, as we know, because of the influx of um, uh, influences from, from Europe, from the Netherlands, people like Pete Audolf coming in, and Audolf famously standing up in 1997 at a conference in Kew and saying, I never think about colour when I planned, which was heretical at the time. But now you are happily sitting here and saying, you're talking about colour as if it's a, a problem. You know, I'll use the stuff you said at one minute. You know, there's almost... Uh, um, I don't think, not, certainly not with Sarah, not really with Dan, but you were, you were really going for this, weren't you? I mean, I think that, um, I think that all of us lot came, in a way, came, came to landscape um, with a strong sort of uh, basketful of, of, of eco ecological kind of um, considerations. I mean, I'd, I'd, my first degree was in, was in zoology and, um, and natural science, and... and so I came to, to gardening, sort of thinking about that quite a lot. Um, but I, I mean, I remember going to Hadspen, you know, one of the sort of the great temple of, of, of colour gardening. And it was astonishingly beautiful and amazing. But I couldn't help feeling there was also something 
faintly decadent about it. Yeah. You know, this, this sort of incredible tinkering. And, and I mean, it was masterful. And, and I think there's always been one side of me which has looked at this sort of virtuosic gardening, which to, to a great extent, you know, um, Fergus Garrett still, still practices at Great Dixter. Um, and think, wow, you know, I just simply can't do that. So, you know, one, one retreats like, like some kind of, um, you know, uh, cheat to, to, to something easier, which you know better. But th there was a genuine sort of reaction against, against this, feeling that, that one, you know, you, you wanted to do something which had a greater connection with yeah. what was happening in nature. And, and as both, you know, Dan, Dan and, and Sarah have said, you know, the, the idea that you're, that you're trying to create, I mean, particularly Sarah said, about, about trying to create a, um, a sort of reduced archetype from nature. You know, you, you, you look at your view of your, of your Welsh hedge bank and then you try and crystallize, you try and deconstruct it and then, and then make it again in a form that can work in a, in a managed environment. But is it really true you don't think about color at all when you're planning gardens? I, no, I, well, I mean, I, I was just thinking when you were, talk, when you were talking about, about, uh, about your paintings, how, how um, you know, people do come to us a lot and they say, I just have one thing to tell you before we start on this garden. I can't do yellow. I mean, we've all had this. And orange, I mean, no way. I mean, but nobody would come to you with one of your pictures and say, well, you know, I like that bit, but can you please take out the orange? I mean, it's just ridiculous. And I, and I do feel like that when somebody says that to me about a garden. You know, it's just such a bizarre thing to say. Well, it sort of comes from the 80s, and good taste gardening, it? absolutely comes from that old thing mm. where they, people think they're going to be confronted with a sort of great big slab of yellow sort of in front of there. There was one person, actually, who I think um, even... even um, restored this room. I, I did some work for, for Mrs. Jungles Winkler once, who, who had quite poor eyesight, eyesight. And she said to me, I can't have yellow. She was an anti-yellow person. She said, I can't have yellow. It's the colour of cuckoldry. <laughs> um, so, so there you were. And I, Fair enough. I no certainly feel the there. same way about Hadspin. I remember going there in the late 90s. And I, I, if you go to a garden and you read the borders and look at them, this, this was cacophonous. It was amazing. It was so rich. And it's also on a slope there in the walled garden. And I actually felt sort of sick. <laughs> and I, I had to sort of sit down. I was dizzy because of the amount of... And it, I felt as if where we had got to there in the mid-1990s was, again, to borrow another art historical phrase, the Rococo moment of English arts yeah. and crafts gardening. We had nowhere to go. It was as if we were in a sort of um, dead end almost. But, but Dan, can I um, turn to you? Because you talked a little bit about mutability and the fugitive nature of colours in gardens, and specifically in the meadow you've been cre creating, I wonder. I imagine you look upon that as a, a as a as a as a good thing, as, a, as something sort of to work with. It sounds sort of hellishly complicated, though, to have to deal with not only a vast array of different uh, plants, but then have them all changing almost every every day through the seasons. I think that I've become much more. Uh, I've become less worried about what goes with what. Um, because of the way that I'm using my plant material. So there's a, a more free-form use of the, of the colour, in a way, um, which uh, there's something more forgiving about it when it's broken down um, and used uh, amongst something more neutral. Um, so whereas I started out, actually, I made a yellow border when I was a teenager, and it was yellow and purple. Um, and it was probably about the length of this room. Um, I was precocious, and um, my dad had a white border on the other side, and we used to spend evenings talking about the difference between the experiences of what that made you feel like and what this made you feel like, and I think through having saturated myself early on, I'm actually much more interested now in taking the inspiration from nature where you really don't get any clashes. Sarah talked about it. And um, one thing, uh, it doesn't matter whether there's a purple and a yellow that might be competing because uh, they are allowed to be forgiving within a matrix of something more neutral. Um, I suppose what we miss, though, with this, I mean, I've tried to describe this as an immersive culture in garden design. A lot of, seems to me, a lot of landscape designers are talking about this now, about you going, you, we're going away from the old episodic or narrative feel, which certainly arts and crafts gardens had embedded in the, in the structure. Uh, do you think we're like, losing anything because of that, if one just sort of gets catapulted into a big mush? Um, I don't think 
I think there are all sorts of different ways of doing things, and I think there are movements that happen within gardens, and we happen to be in, in a movement, it's very recent, what you're talking about, with the, uh, the richness of Hadspin. It's terribly recent, mm. if you look at the greater scheme of things. And it's quite recent that we've stopped talking about that, and we just happen to be in another period at the moment, and, and everything will reconverge. And people are still using colour in quite a form, formalised way. We, we've just been working on a, a, the restoration of a, a Jekyll garden, and um, her colour palette, rather than the specific plants that she was using, is what we've used to inspire the planting in the garden rooms around the house and what we've taken that to mean really is that, is that each of those rooms can provide you with a different mood with a different atmosphere which is created by the color and it's really exciting thing to be using um, but we're not recreating uh, jekyll plantings so yes it's a very good idea because no one really could even in her day but funnily enough this exhibition really proved to me and thinking about it and looking into it that, in fact, Claude Monet was one of the very few people internationally who could garden in the same way as Gertrude Jekyll. But I think, unfortunately, Jekyll's planting plans look like painting by numbers, don't they? It looks easy, as if you can sort of do it. And she describes it in her book as if it's easy. But it's as if Monet had written a manual on how to paint. You certainly wouldn't expect to be able to paint like Monet as a result. But Sarah, can I move to you and ask you, are you a, a, one of these kind of colour deniers, you know, like climate change deniers? Are you a <laughs> colour change? Are you talking a lot about perhaps you'd like to come back on this, uh, this uh, notion of pointillism as a term? I mean, is it pointillism? Is it embroidery? And is, episodic, is, uh, is episode and narrative important to you still? Oh, um, episode is definitely still important. Um, probably most excited by plantings that you can walk through and experience. But I think there's something to be said about drawing from all traditions in the given context. So, yes, maybe moments will reflect the arts and crafts. Maybe you have tighter hedges. But then do, do you ever design... I'm sorry to interrupt, but do you ever design a border in a pictorial way? Because Jekyll gave us this very specific idea. She said, you know, gardening is like painting, over just not over yards, but over scores of yards. So her idea was that you stood at the end of a border and looked down it, and you had a snapshot, and it was like, um, like a painting which you could read. But what you're describing is this much more immersive sense now, where, in fact, the visitors to gardens are often looking at plantings at a much closer distance, only a matter of feet in many cases, and this longer view has been... Uh, can we have both? I mean, do you try to do both? I do try to do both. Mm. I try to create visual links throughout the garden, like Dan um, and, and Tom touched on. Um, I think I'm fascinated by the close-up view as well as the wider view. Um, and I suppose that's why I use the term pointillist, because it, it's about building up a picture, a small picture, and then just letting that expand, expand and expand. Um, explode. I can't get away from colour. Subconsciously, I definitely have always designed with colour in mind and have responded to it. I mean, I remember being at Chelsea when I first exhibited at Chelsea Flower Show in 2007, I think, and I walked past your garden, Tom, which I think you reconstructed in your slide. And one day, because at Chelsea we have all these trolleys hiding what's going on, on, behind the gardens in Main Avenue and I wasn't certainly not on Main Avenue and I walked along and the trolleys kind of swung back and I think you must have had a lot of Nepita because your garden was blue with the rusty Corten and then the next day it had changed colour <laughs> like you'd whipped it all out and it was purple and it was just dazzling. It really was. And that moment really stuck with me. So to answer your question... That was a pictorial yes, moment. Yes, it was yes. a pictorial moment. <laughs> yeah, well, it reminds me of that story of what they used to say about um, Wadston with the Rothschilds. If you went to stay there in the height of the Victorian period, it was all carpet bedding with annuals on the terraces there. And as a guest, you'd arrive and look out of the window, have your bag unpacked, etc., go to bed, wake up in the morning, curtains were opened, and you'd look out and everything had changed. It was a completely new display of annual flowers, which the gardeners had done in the night in order to give you this sense of sort of theatre. So sometimes I wonder, you know, are we missing a little bit of that? <laughs> anyway, but Stephen, can I ask you, when you're selecting these colours, which you described as reactive in your mini lecturette at the start, do you 
think of colours as natural or otherwise, because these garden designers have no choice but to use natural colours, because they're mainly using plant uh, material. Do you sort of have that in mind when you're looking at pigments in any way? I'm not painting paintings using local colour or trying to make... There is that nice, um, nice remark that Turner made when... It's probably at the opening of a summer show here. Somebody said to him, Mr. Turner, I've never seen a purple sky before. And he said, Madam, I'm afraid you never will. <laughs> um, and, and so, I, I mean, I'm, by reactive colour, I mean, I, I start, I'm not an art historian, but the, the, the paintings from around the, which this show in the galleries now exists, the radical, one of the radical moments of this is paint, beginning to paint off white grounds and all paint is transparent to some degree so the light goes through. Prior to that, they would have been painted on, 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 a, on a, perhaps a warmer, ochreish ground. So that the, the possibility of making vibrant colours um, suddenly became to the fore and that became a radical moment. I think there is often a... Um, and I have worked with architects, um, there is often a mistaken idea that colour means red, yellow and blue and as, and as bright as possible. Um, and I think we've seen from these gar the, the gardens that these three have shown that there is this understanding that actually by pairing, pairing back that vibrancy, you allow the rich colours to, to do their thing. And um, I mean, earlier on I also said, I referred to tr trying to do as little as possible. I mean, that's, that's what I mean, rather than it being a complete... Um, shouting match that you just allow the important moments to to punctuate and 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 take you on that 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 visual journey. Um, I mean, I'm I'm I mean, a lot is made of the colour I use. I don't have a theory about it. It's it's very much being led by what goes before it, and it's that's it's a mixture of colour and tone um, and. Where, where the two meet, I mean, that, that level of collision um, is crucial, and I suspect it's the case with, I suspect that's the case with all of us. Well, I think the difference, there, there is a slight um, difference in that, I mean, in a way, what we've been talking about is not only colour, it's also, of course, light. And what your new talk most about it, I think, Sarah, is this quality of light in gardens, which is changing all the time. And I don't imagine you need to think about building that into. To, to painting, so of course light levels I'm change. Very, I'm very conscious of the light, yeah. the, light the light under which I paint. Right. Um, I, um, I mean, I have a, a nice studio now that, now that faces north, and that's a kind of revelation, but um, having for years had a, worked in a, in, a, in, a, in a kind of health hazard of a you know, kind of squalid studio, I, um, I, I was working under artificial warm light, and I... I even in even in this studio where there is a lot of natural light, I'm, I'm conscious of the temperature of the light under which I'm making work, and I, I it's not real. I mean, I, you, there are daylight bulbs. I don't like them. Do you think there is any truth in this idea that certain colours create certain emotional reactions in people? Absolutely. Do you think about that? I'm I, I, I'm I'm absolutely certain it's the it's the it's it's the case. I guess I'm interested in a in a type of visual seduction. And that's with a, a reason of an invitation to come hither, you know, come and come and come and spend time with me. So it's and, and that's a, it's a kind of it is, it is it's 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 the spider and the fly, you know, come and but come these and be caught. These decisions, I would guess, are being made instinctively. You're not sort of premeditating. I, I, I think that it's a it's a question I ask myself quite a lot as to how much how much I know about this. Um, um, I think I'm I think I'm eclectic and I see colour combinations that I like, but colour combinations don't mean anything unless you get it absolutely bang on. I think I do have a colour theory, I'm just not sure what it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of colour theories are rather inhibiting, aren't they? Um, Tom, can, can I just turn to you? Because you did talk about colour in, in, in your um, piece, mini-lecturette, <laughs> earlier. Um, but you talked about it as mood, as the creation of mood, and you were talking about the Norfolk Garden, how it was a lovely mood of court created by the lilacs and the mauves and so on, which you had in that phase of the garden. 
So you sort of are admitting that you're using colour to create emotional effects at certain points in a garden's... the journey around a garden, if you like, which we must all make, because it's a perambulatory experience, isn't it? No, I think I, I absolutely do that. I mean, I... I um, uh, to, to some extent, I, I think of... Um, I think of, the, you know, the, in my own garden, which I mean, I started making 25 years ago. So, so I'm living in in something that I sort of started making when I had completely different views about gardens, and it, it has something of this character of a bit like a sort of ruin through which this this stuff flows, but the, the stuff, which is the planting, sort of gradually changes as it moves through. So it might be, you know, in some places quite strongly coloured, and then and then it leaches out and becomes something else. And I think that um, for it just to have one character throughout would, would be a little bit um, would be a little bit dull. And so I very much use changes in, in both in texture and of course in, in height as well, you know, the degree to which you're sort of immersed in stuff. But yes, particularly colour, to kind of accentuate changes of mood from from particularly the thing about about being held and and enclosed in in, in, in a sort of often kind of a warm motherly space <laughs> to, um, to, to something which is much more sort of releasing and, and, and probably cooler. And I think, um, but I think we also, we all sort of have a natural coloristic bent. And it's very interesting that comment you made about Pete Adolf, which is so either un unknowing or, or disingenuous, because of course he's a great colorist. He has this wonderful sort of melancholic way with color, which, which says a lot about him as a person. Just because he doesn't deconstruct it and analyse it doesn't mean he doesn't have a fantastically wonderful way with colour. In the same way that you know, he just has a sort of a, a way he does it, and he knows he knows what's right. I, I wouldn't claim to being a, a colourist on on with the, of the same um, you know same brilliance as that at all. But I, but it does also tend to be the, the probably the last thing I think about. I think about form, scale, enclosure, and and I certainly think about texture before I think about colour. But colour is, is about the most difficult thing to get right because of this, this sort of, you know, sequential um, sort of uh, coming and going. Um, and particularly on a big canvas, you know, like, like what Dan showed in, in, the, in the, the Hokkaido project. Incredibly difficult to, to get a series of, of, of sort of morphing pictures, all of which work. Um, without, resorting to, without resorting to large amounts of sort of bland filling. It's a sort of different scale. Um, Dan, can I just turn to you now? Um, because I, I know that the likes of Beth Chateau and, of course, uh, Christopher Lloyd were a huge influence on you in the past. And we really associate them with what might be called a kind of connoisseurial approach to planting design, with specific reference to planting combinations more. So it's almost as if they were um, not looking in the Jekyllian way down a, um, a long uh, border, but looking at smaller patches of, of, of gardens or plantings, and, but still working very energetically and dynamically with colour and form and texture and the way it changes in the light. And, you know, again, there were lots of books in the 90s on colour combinations. Do you remember plant combinations, pick two plants, this sort of idea? And it's, it is a strain in British gardening. And I, f I feel, personally, I can see it coming back in a little bit. There seems to be a turn away from this sort of new perennials-inflected uh, movement. And I just wondered if, if that's something that you had missed as, as well in British gardening in the last few years. Um, I think one... I, I return again and again to uh, Great Dixter as a great source of inspiration. And when I was growing up, I read... Uh, Christo's books and then was able to go to the garden and see his words brought to life in the planting and he wasn't afraid and I think that he had um, a perverse interest in um, in turning things upside down, not perverse he, he was really interested in uh, the idea of being able to shock uh, with colour um, and he's handed that down uh, to Fergus who has now, who's now interpreting uh, the same borders in quite a different way. So you go into a garden which, 10 years later, um, ostensibly feels like the same 
garden, but actually Fergus's colour is significantly different mm. to the colour that Christo was using. Mm. Um, but it's still fierce. Mm. Um, the, the form is different as well, isn't it? The, the form is the different. Shape. It's much looser. Mm. So he's been influenced by the, the perennial movement. Yeah. Um, but he's still got that slightly more Edwardian uh, feeling that's in the planting through the colour. So this is very interesting hybrid. And I went there in uh, June last year where it was almost too much. Um, there was this wave of um, uh, oxide daisy which had burst the seams of the countryside and made its way in this great froth into the garden. So there was this white everywhere. And then Fergus's plantings were kind of jostling for space in this luminous um, environment that the oxides were holding at that particular point. Um, and then I went back again later in the summer. The whole thing had changed. The oxides had gone. The white background was no longer there. Um, and it was something completely different. And I feel, although it's not my style of gardening, the way that they do it, it's incredibly exciting mm. to go and look what they're doing because they're, they're still bending the rules there. And I think this is one of the wonderful things about gardens is that there are, in a way... Rules have been set up, but they're there to break. And you can do it your own way. You know, one person's... I've got a great friend, Hannah, who's got the most wonderful sense of colour, and she just twists it her way, and it always is something that surprises you. So she'll put chartreuse with mauve, you know, and you're thinking, wow, that's really potentially quite difficult, but she's got something brown in there as well, and it's, and it's, it's just very, very clever, and it's very stimulating. It's such a creative strain in our gardening, and, and as you say, that garden is conducted at this ferocious, frenetic horticultural pace. But it's always been an exceptional garden, Dixter. You know, so it's almost the one that disproves the rule, isn't it? And this incredible emphasis on new plants, changing things around all the time. Whereas I do sometimes get a feeling at the moment going to gardens, high-end gardens made by designers, that I'm seeing the same plant palette. You know, that's the, isn't that a bit of a problem we're getting into? Thelictrums, Veronicastrums. Yeah, you know, have got a lot you were all the first to use them, of course, but all of these imitators have come in. Um, anyway, so Sarah, I, I want to ask you the really obvious question, I suppose, which is that you're the person on the panel who really has had a, done both things in that you trained in fine art and as a painter? I think, yes, yeah, yes. and 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 so, and then then you know went into gardens. I just wanted to know, you know, w where the similarities and dissimilarities are to you. I mean, have you got a completely different mindset when you're painting and when you're thinking about gardens, or, or how does it work? No, I used to wonder if I did have a different mindset, but um, one day I'd been designing really intensively, and I went to a life drawing lesson after and I just couldn't draw and I realized that I must have been using the same part of my brain and it was tired you know um and um for me I think it's almost um I used to paint very large canvases quite like abstract landscapes quite watery with layers and then thicker paint over the top and um I suppose it's it studying fine arts has given me visual confidence and a sense of fearlessness, like um, I love having a large area to create large swathes of planting and, you know, I'd love to create large swathes of colour across it. The Olympic Gardens are half a mile long and that I really like that kind of size. Um, it's quite macho of me. I, mean, I suppose another art word comes up, people sometimes talk about the canvas upon which you're working. Yeah, I, I mean, it was wonderful going... I suppose art kind of reminds you when I go to an exhibition like the, the one downstairs, it, it, it just, it, it, I suppose this is what art does. It makes you think, it makes you look again. And um, I suppose in particular, I was moved by, like everyone, the large, large monets and just areas of them and how many, it's dry paint, but it looks watery and how he'd layered color upon color. You know, these strange shimmering turquoises, pinks, Browns. I mean, it's incredible. He must have spent hours. And um, I think that's possibly what I'm trying to do when I take lots of little bits of petals or lots of flowers and I choose plants and, and probably what I'm sure other designers are trying to do. We, when you select plants, like as is the fashion now, 
with near leafless stems so that you can create this layering of colour so that you can look down through the layers and across so you can have the small view and the wider view. And I suppose that's what I'd love to do to create that amazing sense of colour and depth that he has. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.